0: This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast.
1: Uh, Earlier today, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation raised its risk rating on the Canadian housing market to its highest level. Now, what is unique about this news today is lots of places. You know, the the in the states you have the Homeland Security; they have risk level, and different places have terror risk level and. DEFCON 4 and all this kind of stuff. What's unique about this is the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation has never before raised its risk level to this height. This is the highest it has ever been at. And it speaks to, seemingly, real concerns according to them, that there are problematic conditions in the Canadian housing market right now. Now, if you're someone who's trying to buy in and get a house right now, you probably knew that. I'm probably not breaking any news to you. You're looking at it going, wait a second, I'm buying a little bungalow in downtown Hamilton that's a fixer-upper for 300 grand. Something's wrong with the Canadian housing market. Yep, fair enough. But they're saying there are broad, broad broad-based concerns about the way the housing market is going right now. And here is where it gets interesting for us, or maybe interesting isn't the right word. Among the cities specifically listed by the CMHC as the most troubling across all of Canada, they list Vancouver, Calgary, Saskatoon, Regina, Toronto, and guess what the other one is? Hamilton. Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business. He is the man we turn to whenever we have troubling, difficult, hard-to-understand financial and economic issues to tackle, and so that's where we're going tonight. Right back to Marvin. We'll let him try and work our, his way through this. Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight.
0: God, I'd like to try the quiz question, if I may. Is it the Trump Taj Mahal Casino?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, in a few years it might be.
0: Oh, damn, huh. I didn't get
1: uh, we, You know, give it some time. It may it may be that in some years, but uh, not just yet. We'll let you, though, if you at the end of it, you can go on with Lisa and give your guess, because I bet you do know it.
2: Okay, that's
1: fine. <laughs> um, Tell me something, when you look at this report and they talk about the problematic conditions, what does this actually mean?
0: So if you don't mind, I'm just before I answer that question, I'm just for your listeners to give them a small bit of background, every three months, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation gives an assessment of the housing market in Canada. CMHC's responsibility is to insure mortgages. Now, we don't all, I don't require an insured mortgage, but it's one of the things they do, and as part of their government agency they also give you an assessment. So every three months, the last assessment was in July. In July, their rating for Canada as a whole was a yellow warning, but there were two cities singled out then for concern of a market being over hot and possibly into a bubble, and that was Toronto and Vancouver. Now, October, they've issued their most recent warning, and Boy, they've jumped Canada's rating to a red, and as you listed all those cities, I think it's now seven cities, six or seven cities, that are now in the red zone, and this is absolutely unprecedented. What does it mean to be problematic? Well, they're taking a look at a couple of things. Excuse me, They're looking at the volume of houses being sold. They're looking at the prices at which the houses are sold, and then they're comparing that to things like, say, income increases in the area, population uh, increases in the area, and here's why they've given us a red, a red warning. Uh, they are worried that what we're seeing now in the housing market is not people buying houses to live in them, people not buying houses to perhaps fix them up and flip them, you know, put some money in, put in a new bathroom, a new kitchen. But instead we're seeing people who are simply speculating in properties. They buy them, hold them for a short period of time, do nothing to them, and then try to resell them as a way to make money. And why are these people doing this? Well, they've looked at things like the stock market or a guaranteed investment certificate at the bank, and they don't like the returns available to them. So they believe they can make a better return by just speculating on properties in the housing market. And why does that lead to a red rating? Well, you're actually playing with people's livelihoods, if you will. Your house, for most people, is the single biggest asset you'll ever own in your life, and And you'd like to believe that if I buy a house and I spend three hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or four hundred thousand dollars, that it will retain its value if you've got people speculating, then they may be driving up house prices, and the price being paid is not a reasonable reflection of the value of that house. If you have a lot of that going on, then we get a situation called a housing bubble where these prices inflate, 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 and the fear is that someone takes a pin and bursts the bubble. And suddenly the house you bought this year for 600000 next year is only worth $400,000. you have lost 200000 in the value of the property. And for some people, you could be financially ruined through all this. This is why they're giving you this kind of a warning signal.
1: Okay, so yeah, because if you then buy the house, so you rush out now. Marvin Ryder decides he's got to get into the housing market, right. but in, the, house, the prices are going berserk. And you jump in to buy your place. You finally find one you like, and it's $500,000. The bubble bursts, and now the house is worth three hundred, but your mortgage is still a four hundred or four hundred and fifty thousand dollars mortgage. Your mortgage doesn't come down with the value of the house, so your mortgage is now worth more than the house itself.
0: Exactly, and and so I put ten percent down. I put fifty thousand dollars on the house. I have a four hundred and fifty thousand dollars mortgage, but the house is now only worth three hundred thousand. It doesn't make any sense to keep spending that money on the mortgage. So was my reaction. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to declare bankruptcy. I'm going to say, okay, bank, you want it back, fine. Well now the bank's sitting on all of these mortgages that were four hundred and fifty thousand but on properties were three hundred thousand, and so then we have not only a big correction in the housing market, but we have other economic woes. And Scott, what we're basically telling you that I'm not saying it's going to happen, but we're actually setting up the formula for what happened back in two thousand seven, eight. The the last recession, major recession in the United States, was caused a lot by big housing bubbles in four markets, uh, Florida, California, Nevada, or near uh, Las Vegas and Arizona, where housing prices got out of control. And then when the bubble did break and these properties fell by a huge amount, this is what you had. You had whole neighborhoods of relatively new homes sitting empty. People just walked out the door. In some cases, they even left the door wide open, left food in the refrigerator, left you know, uh, uh, swimming things in the pool. They just simply walked away from them, and this is what caused much of that concern. Now, the CMHC, in giving this red warning, uh, also have projected that they don't think we're in for the bubble breaking. And why is that? Well, first, for the bubble to break, they think they would need a major increase in, in uh, interest rates. Canadian interest rates have been stuck at a very low rate. I think I can get a mortgage today if I really shop it around well, maybe at two and three quarters percent maybe 3%. For us to get a bubble, we'd need that to go up to 5 or 6%. And while ultimately we think mortgage rates will rise, perhaps in 2018, it'll only by be by a quarter of a point or half a point. So we don't think we're going to get that. Uh, also, uh, we think that the most recent rule regulation changes by the Canadian government. So you know now that when you go to buy a house and you want to get something from CMHC on October 17th, just a little less than two weeks ago, you now have to stress test this. You have to say, let me, try, let me try this. I'm going to do a scenario where you lose some income. Can you still carry the house? I'm going to try a higher interest rate. Can you still carry the house? And that's limiting the size of the mortgages, so people can't rush in and feel they can pay whatever it takes to buy a house. Uh, and so they they think those two things, and then in the case of Vancouver, the special tax they put in, for speculators, not domestic speculators, but international speculators who are taking their money from other parts of the world and simply playing a game of monopoly, if you will, on the streets of Vancouver. We've put in a tax, a 15% tax on those kind of housing prices. That seems to have cooled the, the market a little bit. And so the hope is that when CMHC next reports on this in late January of 2017, we may see us going back to the yellow alert or the caution alert and away from the red alert.
1: But does that, if they do go back, does that necessarily mean then that housing prices have recessed, or does that simply mean they're not rising as quickly?
0: Yeah, that's really what they're looking for, is they, they don't want them to continue to rise. I, I wish I could quote you right down chapter and verse at this moment, but something like in Hamilton, housing prices went up 14% last year. Well, there's no good reason for that. The inflation, the basic cost of living, has been running one4 1.5% in a hot housing market where there's a lot of demand and a limited supply, and there's certainly local real estate agents who say, that's the case we have here, we're not bringing on. We have a lot of condos, for instance, in development, but they haven't hit the market yet. So for the moment, we have a relatively low supply and a relatively hot demand. Maybe that would be a 5% housing increase. But when you see prices going up 14%, you've got to think there's something else going on here. And especially, not that you saw it in just, one month in a year-to-year comparison but you see it sustained month after month after month these high increases with no sign of abating then you think maybe there's another force driving and this is this concern about that word speculation people who are buying houses like they're playing a game of monopoly strictly looking at making some money on the hot housing market not really adding value the way a normal homeowner would and that's where the concern comes
1: if they're right though and if we're going to be seeing less of an increase, would that not mean that if you were buying into the market right now, Marvin, that you would be in a dangerous spot because you could be buying at the most expensive, the most out of control. And boy, if if a year from now, things have settled right down, you may be with the exact situation we talked about where the house is worth less than the mortgage.
0: So this is this is the, um, the trick I can guess I'll call it about buying a house. There could be two scenarios here. One scenario is that, uh, uh, when we say that the housing prices slow, they still go up, but they go up more at the rate of one or two percent a year. If they go up at that pace, that's not a time to speculate. You can't make enough money to cover the cost of the transaction, and you drive the speculators out of the market. It still would suggest you should be in the market today because housing prices are going up one or two percent, and that's what we call the soft landing. The market gets back to normal conditions. Uh, And in that situation, yeah, you probably should still be in the market today. Where you should not be in the market is if you believe the speculators are going to leave, and they're going to leave suddenly, en masse, and, again, they're going to cause that bubble to break. So that rather than simply slowing down, housing prices go in the opposite direction. They fall by 10 percent. They fall by 14 percent. And, in fact, there are some studies that suggest in places, not Hamilton, but in toronto and in vancouver especially when it comes to the condo market some condos may be overpriced by as much as thirty to forty percent if you were to begin to get some correction you don't have to correct all thirty to forty percent you only correct ten or twenty percent then definitely this is not the time to be buying a condo so my my criteria to people is a don't go into the market and say i'm going to spend whatever it takes to get a house get a price in mind look for the value make sure you buy the right kind of a house that you can afford but also, if you're buying a true house on a piece of property where you've got land and what have you, I think you've got a less of a chance of the bubble breaking than if you buy a box of air, which is really a condo, because what do you have here? You really don't own anything. The Condominium Corporation maintains the building. Those are subject to much bigger price fluctuations than an actual standalone house or a, a unit in a triplex or a duplex, something like that.
1: Just before I let you go, uh, and you know what, you mentioned it a few times, and I'm going to throw it out there because it may be a lot of people listening may think this is the dumbest question I could ask because it sounds like we're being idiots here. But I'm also willing to bet there are a number of people who really who hear the phrase the bubble bursting all the time and just sort of nod their head but don't really understand what the criteria or what the factors would be that would lead that. You talked about interest rates. That's obviously one of them. What are some of the other things? What would cause a housing bubble to burst?
0: To me, that, that would be, well, there'd be two key things. One is the, the interest rates going up very dramatically in a short period of time, and then people seeing that they can't, they just can't carry the house anymore. Suddenly, say I have a, a mortgage of $400,000, just for the sake of argument, and interest rates shoot up 2%. Now I've got an extra $8,000 carrying cost on my $400,000 mortgage. Divide that by 12 payments. I've got to add roughly $750, $800 a month to my mortgage payment. And look, I just can't afford to carry that. Second thing would be uh, it's not the housing, uh, it's not the interest rates going up, but now we have some massive wave of unemployment. You might remember, again, in 2007-8, employment went up in the Hamilton area. It got to around 10%. Today it's more in the 6% range. But if we had a lot of people losing the jobs, it would be the same impact as if you had an interest rate hike. You wouldn't just be able to carry the mortgage you have. And then the third thing would be that a number of people stop speculating in housing. They get out of the market en masse and you just hear that housing prices have begun to fall ten fifteen twenty percent it's a bit like you know the sky is falling the sky is falling turkey lurky and chicken little what have you that then leads a bit of a panic sale people saying, well then i better sell mine i better sell mine and that would exacerbate and cause the bubble to break we don't think the first condition is likely we don't think the interest rates going up is likely we don't think at this point that there's any sign of a recession there continues to be warming trends in other parts of the world's major economies Europe the United States and China. But this question about those speculators, it's an unnatural force that got into the market and as such it can choose to pack up and go just on the same dime. Scott, not to not to overstate this, but you remember maybe about two years ago that oil prices at one point got up to one hundred and fifty dollars a barrel and then suddenly they crashed down to thirty dollars a barrel. That was an example of speculators, again, not happy with return they could get in the stock market, and they began to speculate on oil futures, so they drove the price higher than it should have been, and then when they got out, it fell lower than it should have fallen. That's the kind of unnatural activity that we're now worried about in some of these major Canadian markets.
1: So yeah, so whether it's interest rates and people can't pay their mortgage, or whether they lose their job and they can't pay their mortgage, ultimately, or speculators dumping it's too many houses suddenly being thrown back on the market with a need to sell these, which drives all the prices down for everyone else.
0: Exactly. And then you, then you ask the question, look, I, if I've only got 50000 into the house, but my mortgage is a lot more than the value of the house, why am I keeping to pay the mortgage? I'd be better off to zero the till, declare some sort of personal bankruptcy or reach some kind of a settlement and start over again. And, then, and see, the big loser in that then is that $50,000 down payment. You'll never get it back. So you, that's why you've got, you've got to buy the right amount of house for what you can afford and, and pick very carefully the properties. Don't get so excited that you feel you've got to pay whatever it takes. That's really the danger that fuels these kinds of
1: bubbles. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate your time. Thanks for explaining.
0: we Will do, anytime.
1: Uh, it is, go read the story. I mean, I, we, we've been talking about it, but it's on the spec.com You can read it on other papers, other sites. Um, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation essentially saying, Again, this is an overheated market right now, and they are, as Marvin pointed to, they are pointing to the speculators with the idea that if all of a sudden, I mean, just again, imagine it with anything else. All of a sudden, if too many homes are thrown onto the market just as a dump, that makes all the houses cheaper. Every house is cheaper. If there's five homes for sale on your block and someone wants to buy on your street, they're going to get a better price than if you're the only one for sale. That's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously telling you something really basic that you already understand. But that's the, the general idea behind this. And we are at a point now where there's huge concern that that could happen. And if that were to happen, for many of you, for some of you whose homes are your retirement, your nest egg, you've paid off your mortgage, you think, okay, in a couple of years, I'm going to sell my house, move somewhere cheaper, have that money, and that'll be used to help retire. That that becomes a frightening, frightening concept for a lot of people. What happens if the I saw my neighbor just sold his home for $350,000? So I figure that my home is probably worth $350,000, you are going to say. But then all of a sudden something happens, and as Marvin explained, the bubble bursts, and a year from now your home is worth two hundred and fifty thousand, and that's a hundred thousand dollars. That's a that's a third. That's more than a third of what you were talking about for your retirement money, that is just gone, and it is kind of stunning when you really think about it. On a totally on a related but a, a separate note, it is to me stunning to think of the places that are having this kind of issue right now. I mean, Vancouver, yeah, of course, we know, we know what Vancouver's housing market is like. Toronto, we, we get it, we understand. Calgary, Calgary is a little surprising only because they're in the middle of a real tough time right now with all the oil prices. The prices have been going down for a long time in Calgary, so I was a little surprised to see them here. But look at the other three. Saskatchewan, pardon me, Saskatoon in Saskatchewan, Regina, also in Saskatchewan, I would not have picked those two cities as areas with overheated housing markets, but apparently there's competition and people moving there, and Hamilton. The downside is that we're on this list. The upside is we're on this list at least. When was, I mean, I know it's been going on for three or four years now, but if you had told someone a decade ago that one of the six hottest housing markets, Difficulties notwithstanding, fears notwithstanding, if you had told people a decade ago that one of the six hottest housing markets in all of Canada was going to be Hamilton, they would have said, "What? what is in your system? What is? What are you on that you would think that this would be Hamilton? But here we are. It's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? We're, it's great that we are finally a city people want to be in, want to buy in, want to invest in but there's that other side that you just have to be a little bit careful of.
0: You're listening to the Scott Radley show, weeknights from 7 to 9
1: on AM 900 CHML. Heaven knows we have talked about city council, Bill Kelly, Scott Thompson, myself uh, more than a little bit in the last few days. Because I mean and and listen, fairly, there's been with the LRT stuff that's been going on with the big meeting that went on for like 11, 12 hours, whatever it was. And then today, another very significant public meeting in front of city council. This one, something we've talked about on this show before, and again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it tonight at all. But I just want to make one point. Today was the discussion. They brought forward the consultant's report on ward realignment. So potentially the next time you go to the ballots for the municipal election or the time after that or the time after that, I don't know, whenever, could determine who you're voting for, what ward you're voting in. And here's the part that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around today. All this discussion, and I've had, we've talked about this on the show. We've talked to, I've talked to people in public about this. I've talked to some people that have really creative ideas. My brother-in-law's mother, we were at a dinner one time and we got chatting and she came up with a great idea for how to realign the wards to make it more fair, make it more balanced. And frankly, to make the city run better. People out there have ideas. The city chose to hire a consultant to come up with an idea for how do we fix this? And I suppose, not surprisingly, the ideas weren't creative, weren't really interesting. They were were the path of least resistance. Because here's the thing, if the city doesn't do something residents can complain to the Ontario Municipal Board, and if they get enough signatures on a ballot, the OMB will actually do it for them. So you don't want to leave it to that. If you're, the, if you're city council, you want to have some control. But the ideas they came up with, for a $270,000 report, by the way, I've never understood how every consultant's report that gets filed with a city has to be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, honestly, where's the first $10,000 consultant's report? I got to become a consultant for a city because there is clearly a market out there. I mean, the city will pay whatever, obviously. Any city will, it's not just Hamilton. We need a consultant. Okay, here's a quarter million bucks. I think I could probably do it for that much. Anyway, they came back with what well, they came back with a number of suggestions, but it was whittled today by council down to two, really, two and a half. One is that we're going to take the same Fifteen wards and just slightly rejig re-jigged them a little bit. Well, yeah, wow, that was I'm glad we spent two hundred and seventy thousand dollars for that idea. Like we couldn't have come up with that ourselves in the span of one coffee over, you know, at Tim Hortons. But the other idea is let's add another ward, bring us up to sixteen wards. Kind of, sp- it's not exactly splitting Ward Seven, which is Donna Skelly's ward, which is the most populous ward in the city, but that would for ease of understanding that would pretty much be it. There would be some other things, but think of it like that. Again though, $270,000 and those are what we've come up with. Those are and and I know there were other proposals in the consultants proposal. They they came up with other things. It wasn't just that. But when City Council was done with it, $270,000 had been reduced it seems to slightly tweak the borders or split the biggest one in half and slightly tweak the borders. I tell you what, next time city council has an idea that requires an answer that is that simple, give me $25,000. I'll come up with the exact same answer that you would have come up with with this stuff and we'll all go home happy. You'll save money. I'll make money. We'll come up with the same answers. Come on. No creativity in this. Now, the one part about this that, There was one creative moment, by the sounds of it. I was not at the meeting today. I was following along Matthew Van Donjen from The Spectator and others on Twitter. Is that Councillor Doug Connolly came up with the idea, and listen, this is a great idea. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but this is a great idea. He suggested that every councillor should redraw the city ward map as they see fit. Let's bring forward, let's have 15 artists' conceptions of what our city should look like, and then let's compare them, and let's see if somebody comes up with a really good idea. See, you could have right there saved $270,000 for the city. Why could that not have been the idea that we came forward with at the start? Just have one of the counselors say, hey, let's come up, let's all of us bring to the council chambers an idea. And we'll go through them and we'll see if there's one that actually can make some sense. And if there isn't, then we'll go down that road and explore it more. Why do we have to spend the big money first and then say, "Eh, you know, not bad, but maybe there's something better we could do. Why not start with the better we could do first and then spend the money after if we need to? It seems like it's a default position. And listen, once again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm only dumping on Hamilton Council. This stuff happens in every city. Just about. Why not let's hire a consultant. We've got money, hire a consultant. We need a lawyer, hire a lawyer. Doesn't matter what we're going to pay. Well, this is this is the problem. Anyway. So what we get out of this are we're going to have the same number of wards, slightly different. We're going to have one more ward which is going to cost probably about as much as a consultant's report, but every year, probably between two hundred dollars and $250,000, they're guessing, per year to add another counselor and staff and office and all that kind of stuff. So another quarter million dollars a year, which, you know, relatively speaking, isn't all that much. It's about 50 cents per resident of the city of Hamilton. So it's not going to bankrupt us. It's not, you know, these, these things all add up. I understand. I'm not poo-pooing it, but nobody well it was mentioned briefly but nobody it doesn't sound like really pushed the idea of hey what if we were to reduce the number of councilors hey that would be an idea let's go with let's go with something creative let's let's talk about those creative ideas that nobody wants to seemingly bring up let's say rather than 15 city councilors let's have 5 big wards and 5 councilors at large so we can talk like big picture for the whole city. Those councillors at large aren't now just fighting for a war. They're looking at the big picture of the city. You think the LRT discussion might have been a little different if we had councillors at large? Rather than people fighting to protect and defend fiefdoms, that we would actually have big picture? But anyway, that's, that's too creative, apparently. Or as we've talked on this show before. What about changing the wards dramatically so that every single councillor represents a part of the inner city and a part of the suburbs. Again, now you've got people who have to think not just for one particular people group, you have to think broader. And maybe now we get a different visual, we get a different inspiration for how the city should be. Now, the downtown councillors aren't only fighting for the downtown. The suburban councillors and mountain councillors aren't only fighting for the suburbs. Now, everybody has to go, huh, I've got people in both those areas, so I can't just overlook one or I'll be voted out down the road. i got to look after both. Creative? Yes. Where are those ideas? And again, I don't think it takes a lot of thought to understand why that may not be something we want to do or at least why counselors may not want to do it because in any city any politician again not picking on hamilton city councilors show me the politician who wants to make changes to electoral boundaries from what exists because remember they have been elected They're voting on this because they're in office. And why are they in office? Because people elected them. And who elected them? The people within their wards or their riding. So why do I want to tinker with that? It works. Works for me. This to me seems like an awful lot of talk, an awful lot of hot air, and it's going to get us really not very far forward. So what do we do? We add another councillor. And does that change the discussions that we're having about bigger issues in the city? Does that influence the broader view of the city for all these people? You add another councillor on the mountain, does that change the division between the mountain and the lower city, the suburbs and the lower city when it comes to these issues? If we're going to go to all this trouble, honestly, if we're going to go to all this trouble... Let's do something creative. Let's do something interesting. Let's do something impactful. Let's, even if we don't want to cut the number of counselors. all right, let, let's, let's eliminate that thought for a second because you know that they're never going to vote for that. No council is. No council is going to vote for a system that would actually reduce a number of their own jobs. That's not just Hamilton. That's anywhere. So even if you're not going to reduce it, let's do something really impactful for the entirety of the city of Hamilton. They can all still keep their jobs or at least run for re-election, and there's a spot for each of them if they can win re-election. But honestly, to just slightly redraw the ward map, this is what it's going to come down to and we've paid $270,000 for this? Oh, man. The, you, we got to be able to do better than this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The Hamilton Tiger Cats will... Square off with the Edmonton Eskimos tomorrow evening. Uh, As I said off the top, must-win games. Every game the Ticats play from here until the end of the season is officially now a must-win game. Rick Zamprin, the sports director and lord and master of all other CHML creation, joins me now to discuss this. Rick, thanks for doing this. Hey, Scott. How are you? Uh, There is. I'm great. There is a lot on the line for both teams in this game tomorrow.
2: Yeah, very much so. And, and you mentioned both teams. And, you know, when you look at Hamilton versus Edmonton, you're thinking, well, of course it's going to mean something for Hamilton. You know, they're in a dogfight for first place in the CFL's East Division. But Edmonton has a lot to play for as well because right now they are the crossover team in the Canadian Football League, but they still have a shot at finishing third uh, in the um, uh, CFL West Division. And if things really go their way, they could uh, magically jump up to second, although the odds are are not in their favor in that regard. So yeah, two teams who have a lot to play for will be meeting tomorrow night at Tim Hortons Field.
1: All right, so on paper, with what we just talked about, what you just said, you're absolutely right. There's nothing in what you just said that is not accurate especially when it comes to the Ticats. But let me ask you this. If I'm the Edmonton Eskimos, and you're right, you could still potentially, if things go really well for you and every break falls your way, you could finish second in the West. Do I not kind of want to lose this game, though? Because to me, if I'm Edmonton, the path to the Grey Cup sure looks a lot smoother through the East by being the crossover team and having to take out the Eastern teams than it would by going through the Western teams.
2: It certainly does, and and here's and, and here's the big reason why is that at the end of the road in the West Division you have the Calgary Stampeders who won you know a thousand games in a row. <laughs> they're <It's laughs> they're going to host you know the West Finals. They're going to be well rested. You know, by all accounts they are a healthy team. They have a couple of nicks and bruises and guys are going to be out, but I mean they have had just a, a remarkable season. They have one of the best quarterbacks in the league, uh, one of the best head coaches in the league, even though this is his first year as a head coach. Uh, but just a solid, you know, the the elite franchise, not only for this year, but for probably the better part of two decades in the Canadian Football League. So you're going to have to win if you're the Edmonton Eskimos. You're going to have to win on the road in any case. So whether it's, you know, in B.C. or in Winnipeg or, you know, God forbid for them in Calgary, uh, it's still going to be on the road if they do finish in third place. But if they finish In fourth place in the West, they cross over to the East, so they will have to play either in Hamilton or in Ottawa. They have a better record than both of those teams as it stands right now, and who knows, at the end of the season, that might still be the case. So the road to the Grey Cup, uh, you know, I hate to say for Ticats fans and Red Blacks fans, but it's true, it's it's easier in the East.
1: Well, and not just easier, Rick, but if you look at what has happened in the West – these, there, there's a reason there's going to be a crossover team this year. They've been consistently good, and, and the only reason why they're not way ahead of the teams in the East is because a bunch of times every year they have to play each other, and one team gets two points and one doesn't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They have been, though, the word is consistent. And if I'm a Ticat fan, if I'm a Red Black fan, my biggest concern is I have no idea week to week what team is showing up for me. And if exactly. I'm Edmonton, I'm looking at this saying, I'll roll the dice, I'll take my chances playing against Ottawa or Hamilton and hope that I get them on one of their off weeks, it's still better than playing B.C. or, as you say, Calgary.
2: No doubt about it. I mean, you look at the Ticat season, I mean, it, it is really uh, the definition of inconsistence. They they have not won two straight games all season long. It's remarkable. Uh, yeah, they've, they've for the most part, traded wins and losses. They've got a couple of you know two-game losing streaks. Um, and I know, you know, there, there's the injury factor and all that stuff. You know, throw that all into the cauldron, and that all kind of boils down to what the record is right now. Uh, but the fact of the matter is they are really an inconsistent team from week to week, and, and we saw it over the last couple of weeks. I mean, really did not play a great ball game against the Ottawa Red Blacks, even though they only lost by one point a couple of weeks ago. Then they make a remarkable second-half rally again in Ottawa last week to pull out a double overtime victory over the Red Blacks. And who knows what we're going to get tomorrow night. It could be that they blow out Edmonton or they play like they did in the first half against the Eskimos back in July where Edmonton was up by 25 points and everyone was turning off their TV sets or, uh, you know, going to um, uh, to their friend's house or, or flicking on a movie to say, hey, you know, th- you know this game is over. Uh, and the second half was a completely different story. So never mind week to week, you know, quarter to quarter, this team has been just Jekyll and Hyde all year long.
1: I think we could actually save an awful lot of time for Ticat fans, Rick, and just cancel the first half, <laughs> yes. give Edmonton a twenty-five to thirty-point lead, which is what Hamilton <laughs> gets down by it seems every game, and yes. just play the second half because they're better than anyway, and they make games out of them.
2: That's what happened last week in Ottawa. It's about the third or fourth points. time, right? Yeah, and it—I'm not sure what it is uh, if if they you know kind of rest on their laurels or just you know what laurels. Have that well. The laurel. Of the fact is that you know in the second half they're going to turn it on and win the ball game anyway. So why show up in the first half? It's almost it's almost like uh, you know a marathon runner who's kind of sitting back in the pack and just waiting for his spot to say, "All right, this is the time where I'm going to you know uh, kick it into high gear and and, and win this race uh, for the Tie Caps." It, it's not a recipe that I think they manufacture and and you know that, that, that's the game plan. But it just sort of happens that way. The good thing is they do have the talent to make that comeback. The bad news is. Uh, you know, in a key game sometime in these next, you know, two to four games, it's not going to work, and they're going to get, you know, taste of some bad mess.
1: Well, you know, all the times they've done it this year have not been playoff games. And I just, I have to believe that if in a playoff game, unless you're playing... Uh, the Houston Oilers in 1994 or whatever it was with the Bills. Um, (laughs) Unless it's that, your teams are not going to let you do that in a playoff game. You may have got away with it in the regular season, but get down by 20 points, 25 points in a playoff game, you're in big trouble. And they've been toying with this all year. I just can't imagine they'd be able to get away with it in a playoff.
2: Yeah, you know what, come playoff time, the the pressure is ramped up. The adrenaline, of course, is obviously ramped up, but it seems like every second or every minute of a playoff game just means so much more uh, because it's the playoffs. I mean, if you don't win that game, your season is done, you know, months and months of hard work and, and, uh, you know, sweat and determination and and going to film study and practicing and playing and, uh, you know, sometimes getting uh, battered and bruised and bloodied, you know, all that is wiped off the mat and, and, and your season's done. So, Uh, It's critical to play your best going into the playoffs, and at times the Ticats have done that. But this year, you look at what has happened over the last few months, and you just don't have a lot of confidence in that regard.
1: So Hamilton is now one point behind Ottawa. They both have two games left. So that does mean that Hamilton really both games matter, because even if they win this game, they still would have to win their second one, or Ottawa could jump back in front and, and take first place in the bye. Uh, Hamilton has Edmonton, and then Montreal. Red Blacks have Bombers, and then Bombers. Hamilton definitely has the better lineup for the last two weeks. Correct?
2: I would agree. Yes. Uh, you know, the the TyCats are playing at least one team that has a lot to play for, and that being Edmonton. Montreal has really nothing to play for apart from pride and jobs, and you know, players wanting to look good on game film because you know that last game of the season is basically you know the the last. Kind of uh, swath of ink on a resume. You know, this is their last kind of appearance of the season. then for a lot of guys, they may not have played all year long, and they're getting their first taste of CFL action. You know, teams that don't uh, are out of the playoff picture will turn to their practice roster, turn to the guys who have not had a lot of playing time, just to get a look to say, hey, do we really want to bring this guy back next year, even for training camp, or can we cut ties? Let's see how he does in a game situation, but look at Ottawa and, you know, they have back-to-back games against the blue bombers who are very much in the thick of things to, uh, you know, want to host that Western semifinal, whether it's against BC or Edmonton. Uh, And, you know, what a turnaround in terms of, you know, franchise that came out of the gate really uh, playing poorly made a quarterback switch. And all of a sudden the talk in Winnipeg was Mike O'Shea possibly getting fired to Mike O'Shea possibly being uh, you know, a nominee for Coach of the Year, yeah. because they have really, you know, turned the tables. It's been unbelievable. And, and at the time, I think a lot of people were thinking, man, they're going from, you know, Drew Willie, who's had some success in the CFL, to Matt Nichols, who has had a little bit of success, but more often than not, has been a backup for a reason. But, I mean, he's really turned the ship around. They got healthier, obviously. Their defense was lights out for a long stretch. So, you I know, mean, that's, that's going to be an interesting team to look over the last, you know, two weeks and certainly heading into the playoffs.
1: Let me ask you a really ridiculous question. But when I finish asking it, I don't know if you'll see it as quite as ridiculous. It's going to sound like it up front. If Hamilton had lost last week, they would already know what their playoff path was going to be like. They would know they would be finishing second. They're going to be hosting. They may not know who they're going to be hosting, but they would know what they have to do and who, where they're going to be and all that kind of stuff. And if they had lost last week... They could have started to rest some guys, sit some guys, play them for only half a game, get the guys who are battered and beat up a little bit and give them a chance to recover. They may not have had to rush Zach Caleros back in this week. But now that you have, now that you're in it, you can't do that. You have to play these last two games like they are playoff games. And, Rick, honestly, that could end up hurting them when they get into the playoffs because they've got guys now who might have been rested but no longer are. Might it have been actually advantageous for Hamilton to have lost last week?
2: Well, you can look at it both ways. You know, you can look at it, you know, if they did lose, uh, they would know that they'd finished second in, in, in the CFL East division. So, you know, you can't go up, You can't move down, you're probably going to play Edmonton, which might be the case in any event. So, okay, let's rest some guys. But the fact of the matter is that, yeah, you can rest some guys at some positions. You know, the offensive line, probably the D-line, the linebacking core. Um, but once you get to the receiving core and the secondary, you know, those skill positions on both sides of the ball – you look at the depth chart and you say, All right, we can't take, you know, three or four guys out of the mix because of the injury situation we have. You know, look at the Ty injured list at the receiver position. Chad Owens, Luke Tasker, uh, you know, um Brandon Banks being suspended. You know, the list goes on and on in terms of guys who can replace an Andy Fantus or a Terrence Tolliver or, you know, a, you know, name your, your receiver, a Spencer Watt, whatever the case is. So a key element, obviously, is to get that rest heading into the postseason. But I think the bigger prize is finishing first in the division. You do get a week off, so you get that rest. Plus, you're also hosting a home playoff game and just a one-game scenario to get into the championship final. I think if you asked any team, they would rather have that scenario. Although, yeah, there is a risk of you know getting your other stars injured, and we've gone through a whole not even one year, but four years really of the Ken Austin era guys. Uh, landing on the injured list week in and week out
1: we understand that zach calaris the quarterback will be playing this week unless that's at least that's what we're hearing at this point edmonton as we've talked about probably is anticipating they are going to be back here to play the playoff game against hamilton or at least that possibility exists do you believe that in professional football that if a team like Edmonton or like Hamilton looking at the cross the field at Edmonton looking do you think that they would look at them and say you know what if we could actually bang up a guy i'm not talking intentionally go after his knees or something but if we could bang them up a little bit and make them a little sore and slow them down do you think pro football players take that into account do you think hits a little extra gets put in in the hopes that maybe the guy will be a little slower a little sore the next time we play them and if they happen to get injured well not too bad so sad
2: yeah i think i think I think for the most part, pro ball players are professionals for a reason. There is a brotherhood there. I think they do want to hit to hurt, but not hit to injure. Uh, I think when you, at least when I've talked to guys, they they want to face off against teams who have their best players on the field, who are at their best. There's no excuses. There's no, oh, you know, you you beat this team because they didn't have, you know, three or four of their star players. But I think there is a, you know, a, a naive. Sense that I get as well, maybe internally that I have that, uh, you know, if they had their druthers and they they you know speaking present, and they didn't face Zach Caleros, I think they'd rather face a Jeremiah Masoli or somebody else because they know that you know Zach is an elite level quarterback, he, and you know when he has his weapons at his disposal and, and the tight cats are healthy, it's going to be a tough task to go into Tim Hortons Field and, and beat a team like Hamilton come playoff time if they're firing on full cylinders, but. You know the other side of that is uh, I truly believe that teams do want to beat other teams who are at their best. Um, so I don't think they they just to come full circle. I don't think they hurt to injure because I think they realize a football career is short. They I think that would weigh on their conscience if they did it deliberately. At least for most guys out there. So. Um,
1: so you don't think that, if I, there's I, a, you don't think if there's an open shot on Mike Riley or on Zach Caleros either of the two quarterbacks. That the other team might take it and give it a little extra just to see if they can soften them up for down the road.
2: Yeah, you know, they would want to send a message for sure, but I'm not. I'm not sure they would deliberately go for the guy's knee or head. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd have real trouble with that, knowing that you know a player would intentionally do that. And I hope that's not the case. I'm sure that has happened before. I'm sure it's happened, and the guy has regretted it. But. Um, and, and, and those guys will certainly get sought out because those types of hits, uh, you know, it's on film. Everyone's there to see. It's going to be probably penalized if it's that dirty of a hit. Uh, they'll be outed pretty quick. So um, I would hope for that player that, you know, when they have that thought in their mind that they'll think differently.
1: Last thing, uh, Cats this year, three and four at home. It was just a year, year and a half, two years ago that we were talking about Tim Horton's field as the X factor for the Ticats. They couldn't lose there. And they lost the game to Ottawa last year that sent the Red Blacks off to the Grey Cup. This year, they're 3-4. and four. What kind of home field advantage do the Ticats actually have now playing there?
2: Well, it's, I think it's still a good one. I think this has been an, an odd year um, because of the injury situation. I think I don't want to use it as an excuse, but you know if this team was at full power, I don't think they'd be three and four. I don't think they'd be seven and nine on the season. Really, you could easily flip that around and probably add a couple more wins. Um, but I think with every team, it's kind of cyclical in terms of you know their, their home schedule. Look at Ottawa too. I mean, they're two five and one at home. It's just been an odd year, especially for the East at home. And even at the start of the season, you know, even teams out west were losing home games. It's kind of weird, uh, you know. Apart from Calgary, it has been a really odd year in terms of home and away. But you know, the fact of the matter is that Tim Hortons Field is still a very difficult place to play, as is Commonwealth Stadium, as is McMahon Stadium. You know, when you go in, especially in a playoff situation, go to another team's field, it's it should be packed at least. I mean, it is a playoff game; it's going to be loud. Uh, you got to work on silent counts there's all those factors that go into it so i think home field advantage especially in the playoffs does mean a lot not necessarily is that going to guarantee that the home team is going to win because uh, that road team has a lot of work to do but uh, i think the home team certainly has an advantage and i think that still exists here in Hamilton.
1: i should ask you before i let you go uh tomorrow night chicago cubs play a home game at wrigley field a world series game first time since 1945 does this fascinate you or are you a ho-hum towards this
2: Oh, I am completely fascinated by this. I'm, I, I subscribe to the Billy Siennet, uh you know, Billy Goat curse. Uh, <laughs> you know, fantastic story. You know, the Cubs getting Greek, Greek Orthodox priests coming in to try and, you know, uh, subside this curse and having Billy Goat days. And, uh, you know, even the Indians <laughs> they're not slaughtering
1: a, a goat or anything, no, are they at, no, mid, at no, center no. field? They,
2: no, they they had the goats grazing uh, the grass at the Wrigley Field years gone <laughs> by. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm a big baseball history buff. I just love you know the stories and some of the sidebars that come along with it. You know, the Indians in 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 '48 winning the World Series had a chance in '54, but losing to Willie Mays and the Giants way back when. It's you know two historic, you know legendary. Uh, franchises two of the oldest franchises in major league baseball going at it you know what's not beloved because they haven't been to the big show in so many years so yeah I'm, I'm eating it up it's fantastic
1: you then must be cheering for chicago to sweep the three games at wrigley field because i'll tell you why you would be cheering for that if you are a history buff wrigley field was built in 1914 never has a world series been won at wrigley field Wow, I didn't know that. Nineteen fourteen, they last won in nineteen oh eight. Nineteen oh eight, yeah. It is. If you've ever been to Wrigley Field, if you haven't, you must go. But if you have, and you realize how old that place is, and the Cubs last won six years before it was built, it's just it's <laughs> it. And there's never been a World Series clinched on that on that field.
2: Wow, that's tremendous. Well, that was the same field, nineteen thirty two, that Babe Ruth called his famous home run shot in the World Series. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. it's the Pittsburgh Fantastic. Pirates uh yeah yeah yeah
1: fantastic. it's uh yeah it's it's i'm I'm totally I'm with you I'm totally interested in this i would I wish I could be out just beyond the outfield wall there on the street with everybody else and but mm-hmm. you know what you and I will not be
2: no no we will be watching uh, from the friendly confines of our uh, local uh uh family room
1: and when tickets went on sale for the playoffs as I let you go <laughs> when tickets went on sale, I actually tried to buy Cubs tickets and you know what really? they would not sell any to Canadians. Yep. you could. If you didn't have a postal code and, and a, a zip code, pardon me, you could not enter for the ticket draw. And I, I <laughs> called down and I said, hey, what about postal code? And they said, no, nope, no Canadians.
2: Well, you know, yeah, it's probably good that you didn't because of the exchange rate. You'd be paying, you know, $13,000 for the tickets instead of 7
1: No way. I would have got my tickets and I would have turned around and I would have pawned them off $50,000 a piece and you can have them. I would have, <laughs> I, I could have bought a home in the house in the Hamilton Hose housing market. Rick Zamprin, <laughs> thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Take care. Uh, yeah, you know what? It's uh, I think if you heard the news, or I think it was Anthony Urcioli talking before the show started in the sports, fifty thousand dollars each for tickets behind home plate at the at Wrigley Field for the first play out here, first World Series game at Wrigley Field since nineteen forty five tomorrow. The
0: Scott Radley Show, weekdays from seven to
1: nine on AM nine hundred,
0: AM nine hundred, CHML.